1: take your Bible, if you would, and turn to the New Testament book of First Thessalonians, chapter number 1. First Thessalonians, chapter number 1. While you're making your way there, I just want to say that it is a privilege and an honor to um, preach the word of the Lord today, and I thank you for coming. Thank you for Dr. Aiken, Dr. Milioni investing in my life uh, through the process of the Ph.D., and um, I am glad that it is over. Ready to, ready to walk. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 1. Would you uh, stand one more time with me for the reading of the word of the living God? 1 Thessalonians 1, just a small passage, verse number 2 through verse number 5. Let me read this for you aloud as you read it silently with me. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the Word of God. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we come to you and love you and thank you for your kindness and mercy and grace. We thank you for sending your Son into the world to be born of the Virgin Mary, to live a sinless and perfect life, to go to the cross and die there bearing our sin and shame, to be raised on the third day, ascended into heaven and coming one day for all of your believers. We love you. We thank you for this good message. And we pray that you would apply it to our own hearts and to the lives of those we come into contact with this week. For it is in the name of Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. Uh, about a year and a half ago or so, I'm laying in bed with my wife uh, very late at night, and we hear a crash downstairs. And uh, some of, maybe some of you guys that are, that are married, you know what I'm talking about. There's a crash downstairs, and you get an elbow in the, in the ribs that says, you need to go check that out. I don't want to go check it out, you go check it out, but you can't say that, you know. So here I go, I, I, I open the door and it's dark and I'm going downstairs and I'm so focused on getting downstairs to, I don't know what I'm going to do when I reach the bad guy, you know, hopefully I'm going to fight or do something, but I'm so focused on what's going on downstairs that as I start to go down the stairs, I miss the next step. And I crash, I'm telling you, royally crash all the way to the bottom. And I'm laying there in agony just thinking about what bones are broken in my body. And in fact, had there, there weren't, thank the Lord, but had there been any bad guys in my house, they would have had a TV in one hand and just laughed and waved at me on the way by. You know, I, I think about sometimes in, in our Christian life, and I, I, I kind of want to tailor this today to those of you that are going into a full-time ministry of whatever uh, strain that may be, whatever God is doing in your life. I, I certainly believe that the majority of you in here today want to serve Christ and you want to serve His church and you want to reach the lost with the gospel. And I just want to bring a simple message to you today to say, what are the next steps in your ministry? What are the next steps? And we want to be careful that we're not so focused on on what is downstairs or the vision that we have or all that we want, the templates that we've learned in school that we want to put into action right away or all of the things that we, the dreams and visions we have, we want to be careful that as we move into Christian ministry and we begin to, uh, uh, we begin to tell people about Christ and work in his church that we don't miss the very next steps of ministry when we come to the context here you'll find that the apostle paul is writing to this church at thessalonica and uh, he's writing to the church that's in between in between the first coming and the second coming and they're going through all kinds of persecutions and problems and heartaches and so he is writing to them and this is a introductory a simple introductory section to the letter and but it reveals a bit of his heart and his passion that sets an example for us on how to take the next steps in our Christian ministry. And so if you walk out here today and say, wait, what was was the sermon about? What's the text about? I simply would say this. Love your people and look to the gospel. Amen, church? Let's try that again. Amen, church? Look. the gospel and love the people that God has put in your life. Let me just share with you maybe three next steps to take in your ministry as you begin to work for the Lord. Here's the first one. Grow in thankfulness for the people God entrusts to you. Grow in thankfulness for the people that God entrusts to your ministry. And I want you to understand that that is not something that's passing by. Paul's opening section of thanks and prayer is not just merely the structure of an early Greek letter. It is the framework for the theology and the pastoral care in which Paul shows to this church and to almost every church that he writes to in the New Testament. You'll find that he expresses his thankfulness and his gratitude for this church in chapter two and verse number 13, again in chapter three and verse number nine. And so it is replete and it is shot through the entire letter of Paul's thankfulness for the people that God has called him to minister to. And I would say to all of us here today, wherever God puts you, and the people that are entrusted to you, the next step is not necessarily incorporating all of the vision, but I would say that one of the beginning steps of ministry is to be thankful for the people that God has put into your care now there may not be what you wanted to hear today and you may not have paid a bunch of money you might not hear all of that all the time but I want you to say I want you to know is that in your ministry you can't pass by the people you must be thankful for all of them that God puts into your care If you notice back in verse number 2, he says, we give thanks to God. Notice these two things, always for all of you. First of all, he says, we are to be thankful all the time. This word here is in the continuous state, and so it means this continuous action, a spirit of thankfulness. Thankfulness in your Christian life and in Christian ministry is not something that is found, but it is something that is learned. It is something that you have to work at and it's hard work, but God wants us to be thankful for the people that are right in front of us. Not always dreaming and looking to what's next or how big something can get, but it doesn't matter whether that person can do anything for you or not. In fact, it's more the better if they can do nothing for you, that you minister to them in the way that Christ did, that you give your life to them and you love them and you're thankful for who God puts in your path and you ought to plead with the Lord that in your ministry and in your preaching and in your service overseas and wherever you go wherever God puts you that there would just be a continuous spirit of thankfulness for the ministry where you are not only that he says we should be uh, we are to be thankful for everyone isn't that really difficult in fact, I read a commentator this last week, made me, made me laugh, this guy commentating on this very phrase. He says this. He says, apparently, there were no disaffected members there. Brothers and sisters, I want you to understand, it doesn't matter what church you go to, whether you plant a church or whether you do church revitalization or whether you find yourself in Nepal or wherever you go, if you are ministering to the bride of Christ, the church, there will be disaffected people and you're one of them God hasn't called you to go to a ministry where you can be thankful all the time and for everyone because it's the perfect church no in fact I think this guy got it wrong I think the Apostle Paul says we learn to be thankful even when we are in the hard places of life and people aren't so kind and they're not so gracious and maybe um, God puts you in a place where you're ministering where there are people who are uh, sanctifying you, if you know what I mean. They're, they're really hard to get along with. They are critical of what you're doing. God has called you in the ministry that you go to to take the next step of being thankful for the people that are right in front of you all the time. I like what uh, John Chrysostom said of this passage. He said, Paul thanks God for them as though God himself had already accomplished everything in their life. Are you thankful for the people that you minister to? Do you see them not as the messed up person they are, but as a person seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus? Do you see their potential? Do you love them for who they are, not in their sinfulness, but in their christ forgiveness? Do you see them and love them and care for them? And are you thankful for the people that God has put in your path, seeing them as Christ sees them? I would just simply say to you before I move on that thankfulness is the remedy to unhealthy ambition. If you're anything like me in ministry, uh, you probably deny it like the government, but in your heart, you, know, you want the biggest and the best, and, and if you're not careful, it'll creep up in your soul. Well, I want to pastor that church, and I'm going to use that as a stepping stone to get here, and I want to be this, and I want to be in the same room. I want to I be known. I want to have all Listen, we live in a culture of unhealthy ambition. But if you'll practice and work in your life at saying, Lord, help me to be thankful right where I am and for who you've given me. You'll find that God will do His good work in your own soul and you'll open up and move away from that ambition and you'll know that when God does move you to another place that it's not so out of ambition but it's because you've been faithful to be thankful right where you've been. I would also say this, thankfulness, though exhausting, ultimately demonstrates our love for Christ because the people we minister to are his bride. Being thankful can be exhausting. Hey, you you know those people in church that uh, you don't want to ask them how they're doing because you know that they'll tell you how they're doing? Hey, there's, there's been times where I have taken, I mean, I have taken the long way around to the sanctuary. I've walked outside, walked around the oak tree. I have gone out of my way to go in the back door to get in the sanctuary to avoid one person because I knew they were going to suck the life out of me as soon as I started talking to them. Now, don't be pious. You all have the same kind of people in your life. But God, God has called us brothers and sisters to suffer through that and to be thankful for the people and so if that means that you stop at that person and you listen to their problems as if they're the only person in the world you do so be thankful be thankful let me give you a second next step I simply would look at the text and say pray for the people God entrusts to you look what he says here Uh, in uh, the end of verse number two. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. And then notice here, he says, making mention of you in our prayers. Let me read verse three. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith. Notice the triplet here. Your work of faith, your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. You'll notice that just as in the word all in verse number two gives consistency to our thankfulness, in verse number three, the word constantly in verse three guides our prayer life for the people that we minister to. The word mention in verse number two is directly connected with the word bearing in mind in verse number three. And so here's kind of what it means together. As we bring to mind the work of God and the lives of our people, we mention them before the Lord in our prayers. And I would say to us that that one of the next steps in our our ministry is that we're thankful for the people that God puts in front of us, and then we pour ourselves into prayer for those people, that we love them and we care for them, and we spend time in prayer. And notice what it is that he brings to mind. Not the size of the church, not the accomplishment, not the skill set, but this set of three ideas. It is, uh, first of all, works produced by faith. They had already performed this important work that was produced by faith in verse number 9. They had turned to the true God from idols. Faith in Christ produced repentance in the people. And so when we pray for the people that God entrusts for us, we ought to begin by being thankful and praying for them and recalling to our mind that these people have turned from their sin and their idols to serve the living and true God. That ought to bring praise and glory to God and excitement to your heart. They may not be everything that you want them to be. They may not even be far enough down the road that you want them to be. But if they've turned in their heart from their idols and they've turned to Jesus Christ, can't we thank God together in our prayers that they're not going to hell but they're going to heaven? And God has saved another person from that. Our prayer lives ought to be filled with thankfulness and gratitude and pouring out our hearts for the work of faith that those brothers and sisters would continue to turn from the idols of their life and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, he says, but labor prompted by love. The word labor here is a costly kind of labor. It's fatiguing, it's exhaustion. And the word love here means unselfish, sacrificial living. And so the idea here is that you are really working hard. You're giving everything that you have to be sacrificially loving each other. The church is not a club that we join, a retirement plan that we subscribe to, or a competition that we enter to win a trophy. It is the family of love where we serve each other with all that we have and all that we are. And what the Apostle Paul is saying, when I pray for these people, I recall in my mind that they have turned from idols to Jesus, and I recall in my mind how they are exhaustingly serving each other in love. Do you pray for your Sunday school members that way? Do you pray for your small group that way? Do you pray for your roommates that way? Do you pray for your spouses that way? How on earth could you possibly pray for the church of God and ask for him to entrust his bride into your hands if we're unwilling right now in our seminary life to pray for those that are around us? Do you pray for your professors that way? God has called us to pray and bear them before our minds and hold them up before the Lord. Notice the third endurance inspired by hope this is not a passive endurance but it's a heroic consistency no matter what the obstacle, hope always looks forward beyond now to the future when Jesus comes again. When you pray for your church, and when you pray for the people that God entrusts to you, you pray holding them before their mind, your mind, knowing that one day Christ will return. He will make all things right. He will do away with all of the evil. He will establish justice. And he will bring his rule to bear in every human heart that bows the knee to him. And that's the great hope that we have. Sometimes in ministry you will find that it is hard to go on and that people are stubborn. You'll find yourself like an Old Testament prophet where it says they are are stiff-necked people. But this is the way that we pray for stiff-necked people. Shame on us if we ask that God would put us in a place where everybody is cool and everybody is spiritual and everybody has read Grudem Systematic Theology and everybody knows Greek and Hebrew. I am here to tell you that is not the case in the real world. Somebody found out where I was one day and they said, Oh, you're doing uh, church revitalization. I, what is that? I had no idea what that was. If you do church revitalization, I'm here to tell you you're going to be ministering to grandmas and grandpas. You're going to be ministering to family with sloppy kids and when you go out to eat with them, they're going to get trash everywhere and they barely can show up to church on Sunday. We pour our lives into these people. We're thankful for them and we pray for them. Here's here's just a little application for you you know those um, sometimes old school churches will have like a, a church directory and if you're a fancy old school church you have like a pictorial directory with the families many of you go to churches but I'm sure there's like an online database or I'm sure that there is some sort of a Google hangout or a Facebook page there's a place where you can see the people of your church. Have you ever thought about discipling the people of your church through prayer? Now listen, don't get me wrong, I'm all about meeting one-on-one and discipling and reading through the Word of God and growing in that, but do you disciple your people through prayer? Do you believe that God is able to bend the will and the heart of the people that you minister to while they're at work when you're on your knees? I want to encourage you to think about prayer and the power of prayer in that capability. There are some people in your church that won't let you disciple them, but you can pray for them. And you can move by the power of the Spirit, move their heart, bend their heart, more toward Christ and His Word and growth if you'll pray for them. I just want to encourage you to spend time in prayer. Well, let me give you one last point. So we want to be thankful. That's the next step. We want to pray. I told you a simple sermon today. Here's the third point. Rely on the gospel's power to transform the people that God has entrusted to you. Let me say that again. Rely on the gospel's power to transform the people God has entrusted to you. Look back down, if you would, at the text with me. Verse number 4 leading into this. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. The election and choice of God is based upon the love of God, and we are thankful for that. But notice how that works itself out into our lives. Look again at the triplet in verse number 5. But notice here, he says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and the Holy Spirit and the full conviction." Uh, Maybe taking that apart, I simply would say, first of all, don't neglect the fact that the the Word of God or that the Gospel did come in Word. It just simply says that it didn't come in Word only. But you don't want to be the kind of person that says, we never have to speak or articulate or proclaim the Word of God. No, in your setting, whether it's preaching or teaching or communicating one-on-one, the Gospel still has to be spoken. It is the spoken Word of God that reaches out and changes the lives of people by the power of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. And Notice here, it comes by word. And then I'm going, to, um, I'm going to deal with it like this. Notice it came not by word only, but then it says, it comes by power. Now often when you'll find power, like in this reference here, you'll find that in other areas of the New Testament, it is speaking about miracle and sign gifts. But in this particular instance, it's not so much speaking about miracles and sign gifts, as it is the power of God to change the fallen human heart. Brothers and sisters, I would say to all of us today that no matter what you believe about miracles and signs and all of those, the greatest miracle of miracles is to take a fallen human being who is worshiping themselves and living their own life and the king of their own life and the gospel comes in through the word and the power and it breaks up the fallowed ground of the heart and the gospel seeps into the human soul and they turn their eyes upon Jesus and they are translated from the kingdom of of darkness into the kingdom of light they are moved from death to life they are moved from stony ground to the soft heart that the gospel gives that's the greatest miracle that's the power and that's what we rely on you come here, you study the word of God, and you go out in there. Hey, listen, now you're, you're going to run into things. You're going you're gonna to go out there, and you're, you're, you're going to get hurt, and there's going to be problems, but don't let ever let anybody let up on you. You take the word of God and the power and the sweet spirit of God, and he will save souls. It is his power, his gospel. He's the one that accomplishes it. And there will come a day in your life where you'll have to do what David did and encourage yourself in the Lord. And when that day comes, you remind yourself that it's not in your skill set. It's not in what you know. It's not in who you know. It's not in your great ability or lack thereof. But it is in the power of the gospel to change human lives. Notice here that it comes in full conviction. I'll get to the Holy Spirit in a moment. Notice it comes in full conviction. Here then are the three characteristics of all authentic preaching. Truth, conviction, power. Notice that all three of those in the verse are springing from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It comes through the Holy Spirit. That is to say that the truth of the word, the conviction with which we speak it and the power of its impact on others all come from the Holy Spirit. It is he who illumines our minds so that we formulate our message with integrity and clarity. It is he who is inward spirit assures us of the truth so that we preach it with conviction. And it is he who carries it home with power so that the hearers respond to it in patience, faith and and obedience. We need the Spirit of God in our preaching. We need the Spirit of God in our lives. And we must never make the mistake of thinking somehow that this is something that we rely on ourselves, but we are relying on the power of the gospel to change the lives of people. Let me give you two ways to work on that avoid getting stuck uh, down into the whole gimmick idea I'll i just say avoid getting stuck in the gimmicks now, right now, you know you're here, and you're hearing the, all these wonderful professors, and they're hammering home the truth of God's word. And you go out there and listen. You drive that car, and, and uh, everything is shiny. You've got it all cleaned up, and you're, you're you're driving the gospel bus, right? You're ministering for Jesus. Let me tell you something. As the years go by, dings will happen. It's not so much that you get in a total wreck, as it is that you get ding after ding after ding. And one day you pull that you pull that old car up to your house, you pull your heart up to your house, and you get out and you look at it, and and you say, man, there's a lot of dirt on this, and there's a lot of dings, and there's a lot of problems here. And I've got three or four leaks going on. And the bottom of your heart, you start thinking and looking and saying, maybe I need to do something else. Maybe if I get this or do this or do what he did, I'll get a larger crowd, and more people will get saved, and all of these things will happen. If I just do that, if I, the next thing that is on the market. I want to say to you, there's nothing wrong with reading and using things like that. But at the end of the day, the power is in the gospel. And if you're relying on what other men do to save the souls of people, you'll mess up. Just get back in and keep driving. And God will take the gospel and save who he's going to save. I'm reminded of when Abraham told the rich man in hell, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them believe them. Here's a second way you can help yourself not only push away from the gimmicks but I I secondly would say this increase the ratio of prayer to bible study in your preaching. When I when I was uh, in seminary I remember sitting in a hermeneutics class and uh I, somebody was throwing out numbers like 15 to 20 hours of study for a sermon. I remember swallowing a frog down my throat and saying, good night. Right? You're with me? I want to ask you, if you spend 15 hours of study on a sermon, do you spend five hours praying for that sermon? I know there's a thousand and one caveats. You might say, I'm praying as I go. I'm praying as I study. Keep doing that. I do want to leave that with you as a little dig. Just keep thinking about that. Is the ratio of how much time I pour my heart through prayer for my people and the word, is that balanced with how much time I'm spending in my commentary work? I don't want to take a long time on that. I just want to say, remember that preaching and ministering is a supernatural work that you're involved in. And if we're not careful, we'll pour ourselves into the word and the technicalities of studying so much that we'll forget this is a supernatural work. For instance, I I would imagine that none of us in here have ever thought about the corollary between fasting and the exegetical method that you use. I'm just trying to help you. We have all the tools. We know what to do. But never forget that what we are doing is dealing with real, live human beings, who are souls created in the image of God. And we must be pleading with the Spirit of God to help. Well, I just finished by saying this. A little over eight years ago, I left here and uh, went to my church. And I remember all the months leading up to that, um, and then they voted on me. And uh, the next day, it was a Monday, I was working for the Texas Roadhouse. I I helped to open that as a hot prep cook. And uh, so I went in and I said, uh, they voted yes. And the boss was really kind, and uh, she said, hey, if you want this to be your last night, be your last night. I said, hmm, okay, sounds good. And uh, so I think Tuesday morning, I took a load of books down. And uh, I remember uh, loading them up, got up there in the office. I sat down behind the desk for a minute. And I saw, well, what do I do now? What's next? About 25 minutes later, guy came in the office propped his feet up on my desk and said I don't have an agenda but let me tell you what I'd like to see happen around here (laughs) let me tell you the next steps the next steps between showing up and saying oh my goodness what do I do now and all of the challenges that come 25 minutes and beyond dream big Use everything that you've learned. Make sure you get the next step of being thankful for who God puts in your place, of praying for them, and of putting your confidence in the simple, preached, powerful, convicting, spirit-driven message of the gospel. And He'll do the work.